0: Boxes and Lines This is Ronan Ryan And I'm here with my esteemed colleague John Ramsey Welcome to Boxes and Lines He always does a shit Irish accent We have an esteemed guest here today Met Connect from T-Row the voice of the by side welcome to popes and <laughs> lines Matt
1: we're so honored you could spend a wee bit of time on our humble
0: podcast Oh God I hope they edit yeah. this Well, shit. thanks for having me yeah Th- thanks for joining us Matt we, we appreciate it we've, we've known you over the years and I joke on the voice of the by side but you kind of are a very outspoken bysider so we're thrilled to have you here but before we get going I needed to bust your chops on something like I noticed when we were going on the panel at sta National in DC. You had a little pin on your suit, uh, Buffalo Bills. On the name of God, are you a Buffalo Bills fan? There must be a backstory
2: here. Yeah, There's definitely a back It's going to take up most of your podcast here. But I want to get the story out because everyone asks me <laughs> a I'm a Bills out, fan and I don't want to tell it a hundred mm-hmm. times. So mm-hmm. hopefully everyone will listen. Mm-hmm. The answer can be out there for everyone. He's really serious right now, guys. So this goes back to when I was a little kid. Um, I don't know if most people know, but I'm Turkish. That's my descent. I was actually born and raised in Turkey till I was about 10 years old. Uh, my mom is Turkish but grew up in the States. So she had a uh, urge to kind of get back in and see her family. Uh, So at the age of 10, they moved us over uh, from Turkey to the United States. And, you know, being 10 years old and not having spoken a lick of English up to that point, not yeah. one word. That you wasn't speak really making, taught.
1: You speak much better English than Ronin. Well, so first of all, there's a good. lot yeah.
2: here. I'm going to tangent a bunch of things, right? Mm-hmm. So first <laughs> of all, excuse me if I use bad words mm-hmm. or no, that, you know, there's no bad my vocabulary isn't that good because it is oh, my second please. language. Just yeah, throwing that out there. My, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> second, so I, I come to the States. I don't know any English. Uh, we actually came here in July. Uh, I had to go to basically like a a fast-paced, accelerated program to learn as much English as I could. Uh, I did that for about two months, went to school my first day. Obviously, everyone knows I'm a foreign because I have the name Mehmet and they hadn't seen me the year before. Did you have a beard back then? I did not. (laughs) The beard I have now, I have been growing since I was 10. It looks great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, first day of school, a bunch of kids kind of pull me aside and ask me if I'm male or female. Uh, I don't know what male or female means, uh, obviously they're, they're kind of having fun with me. Uh, I know what male is in the term of like envelopes and mail and a postage kind of thing, so I say I guess I'm female by kind of just process of elimination. Everyone has a good laugh. Nice. Uh-huh. I'm getting hazed. It's all fun. Uh, subsequently, by the way, it sounds like my parents, you know, when they come over here, they're, I'm 10. I'm going to outgrow everything I own. So they don't bring any of my clothes over. They apparently buy stuff when they get over to the States. And I go to school uh, a few days later wearing a Buffalo Bills shirt. I'm not kidding, I actually probably still have that shirt somewhere. Uh, But one of the kids comes up to me and asks me if I'm a Bills fan. Now I'm expecting to get hazed from the previous incident. And I say, sure, I don't know the answer. So I say, yes, and they go, great, so am I. And I'm like, all right, great, I don't know what that means. I've never (laughs) seen American football, right? Uh So uh, I'm I'm a soccer guy, obviously, in Turkey, and so. You know, I'm like, all right, this is good, but I don't know what this means. So I have to reinforce this because I'm trying to make friends. Uh, I go home, I ask one of my cousins. who uh, lives near us and said, you know, he says it's American football. I've never seen a down, ever, a play in American football. So I watch it that weekend. Uh, now, I grew up in North Jersey, so I didn't get to see Bills games. But what I got year to watch was it. this? This is 1988. Okay, wow. Um, so obviously the Bills are kind of on the rise, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're up and coming. They have a new quarterback. Thurman Thomas was drafted, all these guys almost are touched it a few starting times, to film. Right? Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, it just kind of develops from there. Looking for that that insecure ten year old kid looking for some kind of attention and friendship uh, becomes a Bills fan and the legacy continues. Well, yeah, so oh, That's uh, a, such uh, a
1: sweet life affirming story, Ronan. I don't know why you can't do more of those.
0: All right, I guess we got to get to business because Ramsey's a, a you know <laughs> you know serious guy. So I was creeping you at a ELS in Miami. You were on a panel, and you were talking on the panel about um, you know the buy side trader. You're talking about where the buy side trader is in the value chain now versus maybe five years ago? Where do you think it's going? What's your perspective of a buy-side trader? And I'll caveat that whereas a lot of people who don't really know what the hell they're talking about think that a buy-side trader is nothing more than like an you know an order jockey who just gets an order and plunks it in an algo. Maybe there's some people who operate that way, of course, but I, I think there is more detective work uh, than meets the eye. And then the long-winded question, the third mm. part of that is how is, shut up, Ramsey, how's the interaction <laughs> with the with the PMs changed over time? Is there more respect from the PM's vantage point um, with a, a trader, well, a good trader? Unfortunately, now we're out of time. So just, <laughs> That's stop. the funniest <laughs> thing this fuck has said on any this, of these podcasts. Leave the room. It can't
2: get any better. This is why Ronan doesn't moderate panels, by the way. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. No one gets to speak. Yeah, no, you're you're out of here, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do this thing on my
0: own. Go. <laughs>
2: Uh, so, yeah, it, it's changed drastically. You know, I've been on a trading desk now, so I've been with TRO almost 20 years. I've been on the trading desk since about '09, and even since '09, it's been a, a, a significant change between how we've executed orders, obviously, to even upstream how we communicate with our portfolio managers. We've always had a model where there are dedicated portfolio managers assigned to each trader so each trader has three or four portfolio managers that they work with very closely. They understand the intent of that portfolio manager. They're given discretion by that portfolio manager to trade their securities a certain way. Uh, So they have a lot of control. So you would trade all of
0: their securities or would it be sectorized? Generally,
2: so we say at row is we have a PM major and a sector minor. Okay. Um, So generally uh, any trader could be trading any sector when there is a bigger situation. So if multiple portfolio managers are trying to trade a specific stock in a specific sector, that'll then go over to the sector person generally. They have a little bit more familiarity with the space, what the specific sector traders on the desk are like, who they can interact with, all that stuff. So that process has always been kind of tried and true for us Uh, what's changed obviously is the way that we execute orders i mean we went from being a very heavy voice or cash uh, trading uh, kind of facility where maybe 70 percent of our stuff was being done high touch as you call it uh to now almost the inverse about 65 percent is being done low touch Uh, and i think that transition has happened obviously with technology with advancements with the way the market has kind of fragmented and changed but Also, in the way that information and data is being delivered to us, I mean, it's very manual. Uh, concepts back in equity in 10, 15 years ago, where you, it was a lot on the phone, a lot via IB chats. Now, your EMS, your vendors, everybody's kicking out information. And what we're trying to do is deliver it the easiest way for the traders, push it out to them so that they can absorb as much information, share it with their portfolio managers, and then help with that investment process.
1: I'm interested. The last um, podcast that we did was um, dedicated to a report that was put out by Greenwich Associates on um, sort of what does the buy side want. I assume that you may have like read it. Did you have any? Uh, reaction to that? Anything that surprised you? Did it match what your experience is?
2: It generally matches. Uh, The one thing I think you guys highlighted on your podcast that I agree with but it's also a little surprising is the fact that I think Eric said this, um, that in ATSs there isn't as much segmentation uh, that you'd be surprised by that. I mean, that's one of the benefits of an ATS, right? That segmentation ability. And I think the buy side not asking for segmentation. This is something I've said long ago, which is it's, it's a little strange to me that the buy side's comfortable putting large quantities of orders on the to ATSs because they believe they're dark or anonymous and not so doing it on an exchange. And I get why you don't want to lit your orders up, but I think they sometimes miss the counterparty argument. It's the same counterparties that are trafficking in lit and dark markets. And so if you're okay transacting with one in one, you know, whatever you want to call it, one kind of protocol, but not on the other, it doesn't make any sense to me. So that's where I've always had that conflict between the buy side of saying, look, know your counterparty and segment your counterparty if you want to. And by the way, there's needs for liquidity. So if you do have that strong demand for liquidity, certainly you can interact with whoever you want. But if you don't and you have the option to segment, why wouldn't you?
1: Yeah. So rebates. Should Should we talk about rebates? One of the reasons. Let's talk about rebates. So exchanges have said for a long time that the rebate system is necessary to preserve to uh, serve institutional investors. That if we don't have rebates, then investors are going to suffer horribly. Do you want to just give uh, sort of a short synopsis of your views on um,
2: what rebates do or don't do for market efficiency, liquidity, et cetera? Um, I. I don't necessarily fully disagree with the notion that rebates do provide liquidity provision for market makers. Um, I would disagree with the notion that they're necessary for very liquid names. And I think that's what we see in our marketplace where there is this one-size-fits-all approach to everything that's done on a regulatory basis. And we're trying to maneuver around that. uh, And we can talk about round lots, tick sizes, whatever else that Really shouldn't be done on a one-size-fits-all basis. It should be customized to the type of security you're trading. Uh, but rebates kind of fall into that because, you know, I, nobody really needs rebates to provide liquidity in Bank of America. Uh, we probably do need it down the spectrum in small and mid-cap names, but that's not how the market functions. The majority of the rebating takes place in large cap liquid exactly. names, where yeah. it's not necessarily necessary for us. So while I don't want to get away from liquidity provision because it's an important function, I don't know that it's being utilized properly or kind of giving us the best benefits in that small mid arena.
0: I agree, and I think I think other exchange execs outside of IEX have stated that before where it's not necessarily needed in the liquid names, which is why it was pretty surprising to us how aggressive, um, you know, they attacked the transaction fee pilot and you know, we're in the process right now where I guess it's going through the, the courts. JR would know better than I, but we're we're still in that state position. It's going through the That's a good Thanks. way to put it, yeah. God, that's, I'm, that's so, I'm so glad he joined <laughs> us today. Man. But to yeah. that point,
2: so we've been on this journey for rebates for a very long time. Yeah. I think this started sometime in 2009 and our yeah. first ask of the SEC was take your 50 most liquid names that you have in the marketplace and just remove the rebate for those names and see what happens. It's an interesting experiment. We want to see if liquidity provision... Across really all exchanges. And, Across and all exchanges. And you were part
1: of the Equity the, uh, Advisory MSA. Committee, right? Correct. The committee that committee um, sort of created this recommendation. And that was
2: very similar request. Almost, uh, you know, we broadened the spectrum a little bit to include small and mid-cap names because we wanted the experiment to be a little bit more broad um, in its implication. But we still only suggested 100 names in each of the buckets that we proposed. And again, this is just to understand better, is liquidity provision really hurt in those types of names? And does it really help in the small mid cap space? And the frustrating thing for someone like me is, you know, when you look at Reagan MS, there's probably like three or four major tenants of Reagan MS. And everyone says on 6.11, you can go ahead and maybe adjust OPR with minimum thresholds or size tolerances to kind of go ahead and, and you know, ignore the NBBO. On 6.12, people are sitting there saying, maybe we should adjust the tick. Maybe we should go to sub pennies. Then you bring up 610 and everyone kind of looks at you like you're an alien, it says, why, why would we change rates? Like, that's insane. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's kind of surprising and a little perplexing, but then you realize where it's coming from, and it's you know, business-driven and bottom-line driven, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. I, are you surprised that the exchanges have been so aggressive in suing the SEC and
2: you know, pulling out all stops in order to um, do anything possible to keep this thing from going forward? Nothing the exchanges do surprises me anymore, but yeah, this one's, you know, to sue your own regulator, essentially, because they're trying to garner data by running an experiment um, is a little surprising. I'm surprised they went as far as they did. Obviously, there's been times where they've threatened to sue for other reasons, but kind of backed away from that. And to go and actually sue the regulator was a little bit surprising for sure.
1: Well, of course, even if they lose the court decision, part of this is like kicking the can and delaying as long as possible, right? So it's sort of a cynical ploy, in my view, to try to...
0: Delay things. All right. Ne- next topic, I'd like to talk about. John would probably like this because it's hard to get him here in the morning anyway. But like <laughs> Matt, you've you've been a proponent of a shorter trading day. Um, what does that mean? And can John just show up for a one hour a day? To you know,
1: I balls? love how you <laughs> gratuitously find you know yeah. some hook in order to throw shade my it's, way. And you only live double. a couple yeah. of miles away, <laughs> yeah. and I live forty miles yeah. away. Anyway,
2: Matt, I don't necessarily want to call it a shorter trading day. Yeah. That sounds yeah. more negative than it needs to be. I think uh, the times when the market is open can be adjusted. So it's it's kind of archaic when you look at 9.30 he's, to 4 o'clock. He's a politician o'clock. here. <laughs> no. So, so I am... Listen, just to be clear, I do want to shorten the trading day a but smidge, I'm not gonna call it a smidge, but that's not really the intent here. So... We'll
0: call it compressed trading day. So yeah. if you yeah. look
2: at the compressed trading day, good, good word. Uh, there's benefits to, obviously, so this comes from you know just personal observations and us actually being in the marketplace every yep. single day. I've been on a trading desk, like I said, for 10 years, and we get in really early in the morning, around 6.45, 7 o'clock, and we're there for two and a half hours disseminating all this information that comes in overnight, but technology's improved, that information is improved. We we get that pretty quickly done around 7.30, 7.45. You know, we have a morning meeting every day to kind of go over what's the, the pertinent news, and then we have about an hour and a half to kill before the market actually opens. And so, you know, the question from the East Coast has always been, why can't we just shorten that? Why can't we narrow it down, start it at nine o'clock? It actually gives you better overlap with Europe, which is an important function, obviously, and that's something that they're looking at over there, shortening hours. But it also goes to the back end. Um, So there's been talk about potentially doing, Canada's been talking about adjusting their MOC. Um, And one of the, I guess, negative points of doing a non-continuous auction is that you're worried that at 4 to 4.05, while you're conducting an auction, um, intermediaries can't really step in because they can't hedge any of the positions they have because all the other markets are closed. So the thought has always been, why not bring that close up a little bit earlier, still allow futures to trade. We can change cash close times to three o'clock. So my proposition is nine to three markets. So it's 30 minutes shorter. Uh, compressed. Compressed. Uh, but you're not going to lose any liquidity because so it's not So you'd actually start
1: minutes. trading earlier, earlier. The day. Earlier. Oh, wow. So what's All interesting right. about Let's this along. is yeah. that the West That's Coast... Dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> ...is the West Coast,
2: who is, you know, obviously going to be impacted more on the early start, is completely in favor of this from everyone yeah. I've talked to on the West Coast, because they're already in early as well. They're doing the same information dissemination that we're doing on the East Coast. And to them, to be able to leave at noon, essentially, with 3 o'clock market closed, is really beneficial. Now, there's really good pros to this. One, from a technology perspective, uh, you can actually run your overnight cycles. Everyone basically runs overnight cycles after the U.S. market closes because there's no other market open until Australia comes back on. Uh, Giving an extra hour there is really, really beneficial for tech. Two, it's a quality of life thing. I mean, you guys have a women in finance thing going on this morning. And when you look at it, there's a lot of single caregivers out there that really can't make a job function where it's 7 to 5. It's really difficult to do, and especially living in New York, trying to get home, we all know how bad the commute is here. Uh, condensing that day to nine to three really does allow people a little bit more flexibility to go and take care of their kids, go just sporting events, whatever it might be.
1: Well, I think that's really interesting. And if this idea really takes off, then people will know it started right here on Boxes and lines.
0: does <laughs> Doesn't he sound like Mrs. Deathfire when he does his Irish accent? It's not bad. Maybe it's just hot in here, I'm getting hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's true, we, we do have met in the IEX podcast pod. <laughs> and while we have fans on the ceiling, they're never on. Another question I have for you in particular, Mitt, um, why does a buy-sider care about market data fees? Do buy-siders care? Should they care? Is it not a broker versus an exchange fight?
2: Yeah, they should absolutely care. Uh, unfortunately, we're not directly impacted. We don't get those bills as much as the sell side does. Now. That being said, we do get those bills. Our cost of data has increased as well. If you look at our usage of Bloomberg, whether it's uh, you know the indices that we have that are getting priced in there, everything does incrementally increase. And we've yep. seen 40, 50% increases year over year of our data consumption as well. Um, and for not more data per se, the same data, just costlier. Uh, unfortunately, that bill to us isn't as significant as it would be to an exchange or to a broker, um, trying to consume that same data. But it's important because Ultimately, we're paying commissions. The reason we're paying commissions for execution is because the broker is providing us a service, whether it's on the execution side, whether it's whatever benefits that we're getting from that broker. If all of those commissions are essentially being passed through to an exchange, then that broker really is kind of being marginalized to not really being able to benefit from that revenue that they're receiving. And there comes a point where you can only reduce commissions so far, and I think we've gotten to that tipping point. I've heard a lot of brokers comment on, people are asking for lower commissions, they're not really able to do that anymore because you can't lose on every single trade that you execute. Um, And it's almost getting to that point where we're gonna start ticking up commissions. And if we get to that point where we start ticking up commissions, you know, then it affects the clients ultimately, right? Because the clients are absorbing that cost. They are the ones paying that. So that's what we're trying to fight.
1: And you made the point on this market data round table last October that um, it was as a practical matter, you cannot in good conscience employ a broker that is not actually subscribing to all of the fast exchange market data feeds. And so as a practical matter, the pool of people that are available to service accounts like yours shrinks because it's a it's a huge kind of gating issue for a lot of
2: for smaller, medium medium sized firms. You won't like think. the word
1: shrinks, say compressed. Oh, John. okay, compressed, sorry.
2: <laughs> That's true. Um, Yeah, so I I made the comment on the roundtables about, you know, that I won't utilize a broker that uses the SIP data. And it was twofold, a little bit to do, obviously, as you said, with speed and the latency that exists out there, but then also because of the lack of data that's actually in the SIP. Yeah. And so, you know, it's really difficult to envision a broker being able to effectively either post orders or take liquidity when they can't see depth of book, uh, frankly. So if you're using the SIP, now, there are probably some uh, cases where the SIP makes sense and you can use the SIP, uh, but not when you're doing broker routing effectively, essentially, so that's where that comment comes from, but I agree with you. Uh, the more fixed costs that are associated with trading, uh, the more difficult it becomes for smaller firms to just come into the business and have that a massive fixed cost immediately before they even trade, and I think you guys experienced this. Yep. Before executing a single order, you've already got X amount yeah, of... Yeah, the you know,
0: cost is, is pretty high. Uh, w- A point I'd bring up, and it might not be the most popular point with the buy side is, I I think they need to hold a line on commission at this point. When people talk about the transaction fee pilot, they jump right to the the no rebate bucket. I think the, the bucket, I always mix them up, whether it's one or two, where the most you can charge is 10 mils to take. I I think that's an interesting study as well, and I think that the buy side should not view that as a 20 mil discount going forward. I haven't been on a broker desk for a while, but I remember what our costs were per share there to trade, whether it was aggressive liquidity seeking, whether it was a passive VWAP type algo. The margins were pretty, pretty tight then at a 50 mil rate, and you look at where market data fees and technology fees have gone over that like seven year window, so I'm just not sure um, how the buy side can expect the sell side uh, to take any more of this commission compression. And I do hear it a lot. And then may- maybe, obviously, T. Rowe is a big client and sophisticated client. Maybe the brokers don't want to push back broadly, uh, mm. but I, I do think it's a, it's an important thing in the industry. I love you, buy side. Don't be mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with
2: that. I think we do have to hold yeah. um, kind of steady where we are, but there's still pressure, obviously, to continue going lower.
0: Yeah. Um, another topic I want to touch upon because it's speaking of Ramsey saying Ken's been kicked down the street (laughs) 6063-B Part the
1: no, but um, I think it's paren, 606 six oh six three B three B yeah you like yeah, that this is there's the, no dash no, I, I think there's no dash is a Peran yeah. a French word what, uh, what that did you actually write? would require <laughs> brokers to provide to their institutional clients uh, detailed disclosures about how they route their orders and what the performance is and different metrics and that's starting to go into effect so is this useful does it matter to you do you already get the information that you need um, does this rule change actually give you anything that you couldn't get.
2: They there are a couple of you know, positives from this rule change, frankly. One, we do get a lot of this information from the big bulge bracket brokers, but when you get down to the secondary and tertiary brokers, that's something that we've really never generally asked for from them. Uh, and this does kind of put them on that same playing field to say, look, you, you are responsible for routing orders. You are therefore responsible for providing this data as well, which is great. It's a standardization across the industry. Uh, So it's useful and we can kind of utilize that data to a degree Uh, and it's great from the retail side I think the disclosures around any kind of real benefits or any kind of real uh, Agreements that are in place with payment for order flow or whatever it might be is going to be much more public uh, For us to absorb. So it's it's interesting to see Uh, But it's aggregate data. So aggregate data is less useful Uh, for what we're looking at, because when you're trying to pinpoint what's going on and what might be happening on a particular order, it's very difficult to see, obviously, when you're looking at a month's worth of data, uh, and a lot of anomalous kind of information gets swept around uh, and kind of normalized. So it's good and bad. For big institutions, it's probably not as useful, but again, it standardizes all the brokers. It also standardizes the buy side. If you're a smaller firm that can't really take in this information uh, on the individual level. You can now from these 606 reports.
1: So there's a baseline, at least. There's yes. a baseline that everybody is going to have to follow, and then um, firms that need more can ask for it. There's
0: more of the T word. What's the T word?
2: Oh, transparency. Yeah, very right. have yeah, to yeah, say yeah. that? Yeah, if you couldn't hear hey, hey. There? that, Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Matt
0: said transparency, and when our guests say transparency, <laughs> I thought we, we just... get their IX sucks. There oh. <laughs> we go. Here yeah, so so you go. Catch, catch, I thought T stood for anything. T-Row, yeah. Yeah. but, you know, I'll go yeah. with transparency. Jesus, it couldn't have been we very bad if you played that game with an Irish guy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where, yeah. where are those are good help. Last last question of the day. Order protection. I, I read a book once called Order Protection that truly is my bag, baby. By one Met Connect What that was what, a what book. you? I what? wrote that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't remember was that. This? Right? I have a receipt here that. I says, would think that I had written that book.
2: <laughs> I would remember it. Honestly, <laughs> that's not mine, baby. It must be a you guys short don't short get that yeah, palace getting...
0: <laughs> Anyway. Order protection.
2: <laughs> I thought we were. If we we're going to do movie lines, I had a bunch ready to go. I didn't well, know. we were me going. One. No, Give me one. No, no, give me your right. favorite movie line. Uh, my favorite one, when it comes to when we talk about latency, is the Ricky Bobby one from Talladega Nights, which is, "If you're not first, you're last." Oh, wow! Uh, and it, it's actually technically applicable to trading uh, because, unlike anything else we do in the world, right? If I go to the supermarket today and someone gets in front of me in line, it doesn't change the cost of what I'm buying. It just makes me a few minutes later, but I'm okay with that. Uh, in the in the world of trading, obviously, if I'm not first, and that price ticks up, that obviously you know is negative for me.
1: That's a very nice illustration, wow. Ronan. You should take you should take account of that. So yes. seven
2: years uh, ago, I wrote a book called OPR. That's my bag, baby. Yes, yes. Uh, it sold two copies, and <laughs> apparently, Ronan was the other purchaser. <laughs> uh, and so I've I've always been on this kind of I don't know what you want to call it, uh, trying to get. OPR removed. I've never really been a fan of OPR. I've never really fully understood it. It served a purpose back in 2005 to try to, you know, electronify the markets and make everyone much more connected. Uh, I think it's served its purpose now and doesn't really need to be around at this point. Again, pros and cons to removing it. Uh, pros, I think it will it's the easiest tool to reduce fragmentation yep. by far Yeah, um, because if you're given a choice of not connecting to, connecting to certain firms uh, Or to certain exchanges you will make that choice I mean, I know I can make it internally and say look these two or three they don't have a lot of market share We're not sending a lot of order flow that way anyway. Let's go ahead and disconnect that uh, I can move on with that uh, it is negative, obviously, for upstart companies. It's going to be very difficult to gain traction unless you have a very unique product. But uh, outside of that, it's tough to gain traction. So it, it's tough from an anti-competitive perspective, yeah. and it, it's scary from a headline perspective, obviously, to say, we've removed order protection, right. Uh But the reality is, retail is so competitive, and there's such a, a you know an urgency to trade with retail, that they're never really going to kind of be disadvantaged by either posting liquidity on the exchange by either posting liquidity or from their wholesaling uh, business that they interact with. So, I, I think it's time that we revisit that, and we can say, look, we can remove OPR and let the market kind of go where it is, and let true competitive forces drive where market share goes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a slippery slope, obviously, with some pros and cons. What do you think about the idea of creating some institutional size exemptions so that some orders would
1: <clears throat> not be able to, would, would not have to be subject to the OPR? Or would you just like get rid of
2: the whole thing? Yeah, I don't. So I've never understood the exemption because I, that's all we would really use anyway yeah. if you got rid of OPR. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to just ignore quotes, frankly. Uh, like I said, would I maybe stop connecting to small firms that have very, very few, you know, small de minimis market share, less than a percent? Probably. Um, but when you get to those other firms, like I'm not going to ignore a quote on NYSE to try and go get size at IEX without interacting with that NYSE quote unless there's significant size at IEX that I'm going to do anyway. So I'm gonna use that exemption. I'm not just gonna say, I'll ignore NYSE and I'll go take out the 100 at IEX and I'll just keep ignoring the, Yeah,
0: you know, It's a, it's a different time now too where like technology allows you to do that relatively easy. So it's not like you're gonna massively signal the
1: market like but maybe clearly, 10 years
0: ago, yeah. So yes. What, what's
1: your favorite Wall Street? Boris asked me to ask you,
2: what's your favorite Wall Street movie? My favorite Wall yeah, Street movie? Uh-huh. Oh. God, I'm not sure. I have a favorite Wall Street movie. Uh-huh. Um, maybe the original one uh-huh. with Michael Douglas. I guess, right? Uh-huh. Is yeah. that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah that's probably right. And
2: Charlie Sheen. I know. Um, I, you know, it's not Wolf of Wall Street. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what my favorite. It's not Hummingbird Project either. I yeah. I've seen no, that no, one. That no, wasn't no, that very was good. Little, yeah, yeah, that was a not a weak. cinema
0: classic. Anyway, so I think that's it for now. We try to keep these podcasts short. We appreciate you coming here, Matt. Genuinely, you've you've been fantastic. Bye for now, John Ramsey. Bye for now. Bye for now, Matt. Thanks for having me. (laughs) All right, take care.
2: The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group, Inc., and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc., all rights reserved.